Good morning and welcome everybody. You're listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM 87.6, 87.8 or 88 right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network wherever you are. Positively different radio in the morning. You are with Lyle and... Angela. Angela. <laughs> I don't know if I go, I'm a good boomerang or just a bad boomerang. <laughs> what? Why are you here? Why are you not in other parts of the world right now? <laughs> because my flight was cancelled. How many, how many times was your flight cancelled? Three. <laughs> so three strikes, you're out, right? Uh, yeah, I guess I'm not going that direction. So we're going to try going back home to America. And so you might be just you, just, you just might be stuck in Australia for like, you know, the next year or two or yeah, just maybe uh, even the rest of your life. <laughs> don't know about like, all I, that. I, I don't know that these countries want you anymore. <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> like, Angela, no, no. Who's Angela? Why would we let Angela back into our country? We're going to try. Uh, what an adventure trying to travel during uh, COVID lockdown. Um, but anyway, you have been, you've actually, you've actually um, <laughs> made it back from Victoria before the border closed. So. Yeah. Yep. I made sure to Google the hotspots just for the record. And we only were exploring the nature, which by the way, Victoria is an incredibly gorgeous state. Wow. Um, and we made sure we Googled and like never stayed or got gas or held our, you know, we held our be- breaths every time we drove through any of the hotspots. Right. Okay. <laughs> Good. Good to know. Good to know. And, uh, yeah, you can kind of stay at the other end of the studio <laughs> today. So what are you thankful for this morning? Um, I'm thankful that I got to take a train ride last night. I love trains, and it was just so fun. And I think that the train stations are so cute in Australia. They look like old Western towns. That's probably because <laughs> our train, most of our train stations are actually really, really old. Yeah, I just was wearing the wrong clothes. Put me in a dress, and I could have been perfect. There you go. Oh, well. Ah, well, I'm thankful that Angela is back on air for a couple more weeks before she has her next attempt at going home. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. All right, what's happening in the world of positively different news? All right, so some good news. Um, You know, the epicenters for disease in America and Europe have been New York City, um, or New York, the state of New York, and the country of Italy. That's kind of in the two main spots. Um, and recently, the numbers of fatalities have dropped in Italy, for example, um, six for every 100,000 inhabitants, um, which that sounds still kind of awful, six for every 100,000. But if you understand that on June 29th, um, it was 28. So it dropped down by yeah, that's 22 a drop. overnight from the 28th to six. Yeah, that's a, that's a major drop. So that's super good news um, as well. Um, and New York, um, their, their deaths were five last Saturday. Um, and they're down from 13 the day before. And it's the lowest recorded number since March 15th. Well, good news. It's good to see the numbers dropping in some of these countries. That is not the case everywhere around the world right now. no. Uh, particularly down in Victoria. Uh, but it's good to see that in some of these countries they are starting to get it under control. Yeah. Let's hope that they're able to maintain that. That's yes. the key right now going forward, isn't it? Being able to maintain the success on COVID. So, yeah, interesting times ahead. Yeah, there was 18,000 patients in New York in March, and now they're down to 900 this last weekend. Yeah, that's a huge drop. So that's, that's massive. That is massive, but you're right. It's definitely something that has to be maintained based on, I think, education. Yeah. Or there are a number of different countries that are showing right now how badly things can go wrong. 
uh, when people relax and just sort of think, oh, yeah, it's all over and just, you know, everybody's itching to get back to normal life, but normal life we need to recognize is probably a couple of years away. Yeah. Uh, the reality is if you look at the Spanish flu or something like that, you know, some of the big pandemics that have our world has faced, uh, it's going to take a couple of years for it to burn itself out and to disappear, at least. I mean, we've, we have no idea about this virus because it's entirely new. So bit of a steep learning curve keep, there. Keep washing your hands and just be mindful of others for sure. That's it. That's what it is all about. All right. What else is happening, Angela? Well, the other two stories are from the country of India. One is just a really cool little thing that this Indian architect is doing he somehow is taking pollution and turning it into a tile for a roof so what he's done he's the mastermind behind carbon craft design and it's capturing carbon emissions from the air and turning it into a stylish tile the device is called the air ink um, and the company is able to draw co2 out of the polluted air city or city air and combine it with a mixture of marble chips and powder and then press it into elegantly designed tiles okay so basically i mean this is this is just like space science right here this is mm-hmm. next level stuff so you need co2 to be able to make these tiles and rather than just going and manufacturing co2 they're just like oh there's plenty of co2 in the air so we'll grab it from there yeah he made up the recipe somehow using the CO2 and the mixture of marble chips and powder to create a tile. That's amazing. Yeah. That's, that's yeah, all right, cool. I thought that was super amazing. That is very, very cool right there. The other one um, is in India as well. Um, The largest city in India is Mumbai, and it has been an epicenter for COVID-19 in India, 500,000 registered cases. And as a whole, the city had maxed out their hospital beds, but they had large concerns for the small little um, slum of Mumbai called uh, Dharavi. We had a bit of practice trying to pronounce this one before we got started today. Yes. So they're like, what are we going to do here? These people, uh, one million people live basically on top of each other. You know, if you've ever seen the movie Slumdog Millionaire, you can picture it. It's horrible. You know, these um, people live in one room houses just next, 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 next to each other and on top of each other. And the city streets are always crowded. So social distancing is impossible. And so what they decided to do was they decided to go door to door and test people. So 2,450 health workers started going door to door at 9 a.m. every morning to test people. And at first they found um, a 56-year-old man that had it. And unfortunately, he died the same day. But because of him, they were able to find the five highest risk areas of the slum and start hunting the disease down using contact tracing to find people who had been in contact with each other. In total, 47,500 people were tested, and they have kept in this little 1 million people slum only 2,000 cases um, and 79 deaths overall. That's a pretty spectacular effort considering, you know, the challenges of working in that kind of an environment. I have not seen the slums in India, but I have seen slums similar to that in developing countries where people are literally, you know, living right on top of each other, often living in cardboard boxes. Uh, you know, there's, there's some places you go to, there's huge cardboard box settlements. Mm-hmm. And there's, as you say, there's no social distancing. There's kind of no hope for... Um, but my but fav- they've done well, yeah. Yeah, my favorite part of this story, though, is the fact that these health workers, they walked around in the severe heat and humidity um, 
and their body suits, they didn't allow them for any bathroom breaks. So it was a complete Ooh. like warrior effort on their part. Not only that, but the main thing that they said that changed this course in this area was that it was they were educating people. That it wasn't a crime if you were tested positive because fear is the killer. It's keeping people like, oh, I don't want to be the one that has it. And so they don't go get tested because people are afraid to be that one person that got that got the disease. And then, oh, you're banded like leprosy. But as they went around and educate people and like, please, you know, get tested, they opened up all these clinics and people started going to get tested. I can kind of relate to that in a way because, you know, at the height of the crisis here in, you know, when it was in the Hunter Valley, uh, there was times when I've sort of thought, man, I, if, if I catch a slight sniffle or a bit of hay fever or something or others, like, I don't want to go and get tested because if I get tested, then... I'm going to be locked down for two weeks. Nobody wants to be locked down for two weeks. And, you know, everybody around me is going to be locked down. And so the whole studio is going to be locked down and the whole office is going to be locked down. And where does it all stop? My whole church is going to be locked down. Well, actually, we weren't going to church at that stage. But, you know, you start to think these thoughts and it sort of makes you feel like, no, I don't want to get tested because if I get tested, then... You know, at least at least I can claim ignorance now, which is a really, really bad idea. It's just kind of the way the human mind works at times. Yeah. So basically, this story shows that um, no situation is di- too dire for human resolve and ingenuity, and that even people living in the squalor have something to teach the world. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Joining us on the phone this morning, because it is Wednesday, is David Haupt. David, welcome to the show. Good morning, Lyle, and good morning to your listeners. Good to be back with you people again. It is indeed. We did miss you last week, but uh, we kind of, well, we all missed each other last week. <laughs> but it's good to, be, good to be back here again. We, uh, we of course, uh, every week talk about um, emotional health and uh, issues in relationship to that. We've spent a fair bit of time talking about anxiety and depression, but we have had some questions that have come through from listeners, and uh, we were wondering today whether we could talk about schizophrenia. Happy to do that. It is a very uh, intense subject, and uh, so many misunderstandings that uh, people have about schizophrenia. Yeah, I'm wondering whether we can um, deal with some of those misunderstandings today and gain a a better understanding of this disease. Sure, sure. Um, let me just jump in and say that schizophrenia is, is is a very serious illness which primarily disrupts the function of the human mind. Now, so often the myth that we uh, see portrayed in the media is that it has a uh, it's a split personality or you can catch it or uh, that people with schizophrenia are violent the the truth in reality is that people that are treated uh, for their schizophrenia are less violent than ever expected and often experience more violence projected to them because of the misconcept of schizophrenia so that's very interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. So they're more they're more likely to be a victim than a perpetrator of of, of violence. Very much so. Yes. And now, is that because is that because of the medications that we have available, or is that just the nature of the disease that it's just um, not a disease that produces violence? Well, untreated, it can uh, have more aggression. But people that are treated. Uh, 
just do not portray that violence. Mm. So it is vital for people to, to go for medication as part of their treatment regime. Remember that uh, schizophrenia uh, causes intense episode of psychosis, which is the primary thing that drives this disease, involving delusions and hallucinations and very long periods sometimes of reduced expression, motivation, and functioning. But the good news is that it is treatable. That is very good news. And uh, I, I guess a question that comes to my mind is that last time we, we spoke, we spoke about um, people that were suffering with bipolar, and they have episodes of psychosis as well. Is the difference between these two the intensity and the length, or are they entirely separate uh, diseases? It is completely separate disease and needs to be treated as that as well. Now, the one of the main characteristics of schizophrenia is the psychotic episodes. Now, let's talk a little bit about what this means, um, because initially it's very hard to tell uh, for, for that individual what is real and what is not real. Where with a bipolar, they go in extraordinary, out of the ordinary activities. With um, psychosis, they go through delusions, hallucinations, disordered thinking and disordered behavior. Now, let's unpack each one of them, if, if you don't mind. In terms of delusions, there's false beliefs that can't be changed by evidence. So I'm sitting in my, uh, in my office with a person during an episode of, of psychosis, and he, he motions to me not to speak but to write. And he writes down on a piece of paper that has just been to the dentist and they've implanted a, uh, a transmitter in his tooth. And they can hear everything that we, that we are saying. And they are after him. So there's a complete dis, disillusionment and um, disconnection from the reality. Then there's the hallucinations, which... Uh, we more commonly refer to when we talk about uh, schizophrenia, and that is where people hear voices or otherwise sense things that aren't real. And then there's disordered thinking of muddled, disruptive thought and speech and disorientated behavior, unusual, inappropriate or extreme actions, which you often would see that part in um, a person with bipolar, but not the other parts. What are the causes of schizophrenia? Causes are very complex. Uh, research tells us um, part of that uh, indicates that uh, our genetical makeup can play a role. Uh, your early development uh, can play a substantial role. Uh, very interesting that substance abuse plays a definite role and here in particular, I want to uh, single out um, marijuana, uh, where a lot of people that use marijuana say that they're using it in order to just be calm and feel calm. There are institutions in America which only specialize on the first use uh, of marijuana schizophrenic patients. In other words, they were actually pushed over the edge after their first use of uh, cannabis. And then there's stressful social circumstances and trauma. All of that uh, 
can play a role in the makeup of someone eventually uh, battling with uh, schizophrenia. What is very uh, uh, challenging for us to realize is that it is very common worldwide. One in 100 people will experience schizophrenia in their life. And it often starts very young and uh, develops uh, between the teens and the early 30s it can develop later on, especially for females. Uh, I don't have the answer why that is the case, but uh, that is what research tells us, uh, which is the case. With all that you've listed there, um, as far as the cause of schizophrenia goes, I guess the only thing that sort of jumps out to me as being something that we could be in control of is substance abuse and particularly you know, marijuana. Would that be um, an accurate um, summary is that you know the the other environmental genetic etc um, effects there's nothing we can do about that but of course we can avoid you know a- abusing um, substances and particularly marijuana we we cannot we cannot change our genetical makeup we cannot change what has happened in our past but what we can do about our past we can in actual fact uh, reframe the meaning and the context that we give to to the events of their past in other words trauma happens but what is very interesting is that you take two people that have come through the same traumatic event one person will be uh, held back and for the rest of their life will have to use uh, antidepressants or antipsychotic medication while the other person are able to move forward one of the key areas that research shows for the difference in those two I'm not talking about schizophrenia, I'm talking about the meaning that we place around our trauma, is spirituality. In other words, uh, some Christians can in actual fact decide that my traumatic exposure is actually, I'm, I'm going to use it as a crafting moment in God's hand to make me instrumental to help others that are and have been battling through the same uh, issues in life. And those people tend to come out much stronger, much better. But it's a combination of these things um, that, that plays a role. Many a time, Lyle, uh, you will find that people battling even with addictions are really starting off on their addictions due to traumatic or very painful events in their life. And they've never been taught the coping skills of how to manage it. And therefore, they introduce to a substance that makes them experience numbing effect of that substance. In other words, they don't feel the pain, the emotional pain of that trauma or, or, or that abuse that they've gone through as a child. And that, of course, then just adds another uh, component which is exacerbating the the, the danger of um, getting a mental illness like schizophrenia. Exactly. And none of us know what our exactly what our genetical makeup and our predisposition to schizophrenia and other mental health issues are. So when we start to play around with, for instance, substance abuse, we actually raise the risk exponentially higher for ourselves to be battling with some of these mental health issues. Okay, so I guess the big takeaway that I'm hearing from this is that if we go through a traumatic experience, that places us in danger of a mental illness and how we respond to that is going to play a big role then in uh, whether we actually get a mental illness or not and the best way to respond to that by is then through spirituality and turning to God. 
I had the privilege of studying uh, for a while under world expert, trauma expert, Professor Robert Grant. And um, he makes the statement, he says, that people with unresolved trauma will live either a life of addictions or a life of mental disorder. And he, he, he goes further to say, now Professor Grant is not a Christian, but he goes on to say that the only way that these people can be helped is by having two anchors in their life, referring to us sitting at his feet and arranging at that point uh, a range of psychiatrists right down to psychologists and counsellors. Uh, and, and he says, you people will be that first anchor, which is a smaller anchor that creates the environment of support and encouragement and holding that person in order for them to believe in the greater anchor and that greater anchor that will bring about transformation and change and healing can only be God. That's a if very powerful statement. Mind. That is a, that is an incredibly powerful statement right there. Um, with somebody who has a history of schizophrenia in their family, um, and there's an assumption then that there is obviously a genetic predisposition to schizophrenia, how important is it that they, you know, um, maintain their, you know, their mental health in a, in a, in a good position and be very aware of traumatic experiences when they come by? It is vital for those individuals to follow through the medical regime, but not to just rely solely on the medical regime, but also continue to work on the mental state. I would suggest on the spiritual relationship with God, uh, making sure that uh, they, they eat well and correctly and they live uh, and here I'm just going to use a word, a pure life, in other words, a life that is steering away from all the negative stuff that can, in other words, alcohol, tobacco, uh, looking at, you know, addictive behaviors, turning away from all of that in order to give your body and your brain the best chance to function well, not only for yourself, but also for the next generation, because epigenetics, the the way that I live actually has a direct impact, not just in my children, nor just in my grandchildren, but in my great-grandchildren's life. So if I'm battling with schizophrenia, um, many Christians just say, just go and pray God will heal you. Don't take medication. I would like to suggest to you that God actually gave the medical science the wisdom to be able to develop some of those crucial medications that are needed to stabilize this individual and taking that responsibility to, to be stabilized and therefore living a pure life actually will have a direct impact on future generations around us as well. We've talked about medication and of course we, we all know people who um, suffer from schizophrenia and are able to, you know, live, you know, good functional lives as a result of medication. How much can that medication be reduced as a result of lifestyle changes or can it be reduced? Research tells us that um, the treatment of schizophrenia will, can last two to five years and sometimes maintenance might be lifelong. 
In other words, initially people will be on heavy antipsychotic uh, medication, which uh, basically numbs every sense that they have. But over time, that medication would be uh, reduced to a much more functional level. And I would like to um, suggest to our listeners that if they are battling with um, uh, schizophrenia, that they do not resist that uh, provision of medication, mm. but they, they actually go along with it. Um, the healthy eating, exercise, one of the symptoms that um, schizophrenics are battling with is that they socially disengage, that they actually place themselves in an environment of support and uh, that they do engage with people, that they um, learn to trust the, the people that are the closest to them that has an intention to support them because um, battling with schizophrenia really isolates individuals and uh, it is an opportunity for them to recognize that that social support is crucial also for their uh, well-being. David Howard, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Of course, uh, a lot of that social support can be received by being a part of the church, and so we'd encourage anybody Amen. suffering with uh, schizophrenia to become a part of a, a local church. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Question of the day. Question of the day is part two from yesterday. We were talking about the four living creatures, and we found that the four living creatures described in three verses in Revelation chapter 4, have an entire chapter of the Bible dedicated to them in Ezekiel chapter 1. And some people will say, well, the accounts between the two are different. There are differences between the two, therefore the Bible contradicts itself. I would say no. I would actually say that the difference between these two accounts, Ezekiel chapter 1 and the three verses in Revelation chapter 4, verse 6, 7, and 8, um, the differences actually show the credibility of the Bible. And the reason why I say that is that if they were both exactly the same, then you would say, well, John just copied that from Ezekiel. He didn't have a vision at all. He was just copying down what Ezekiel said. But because both Ezekiel and John are writing down what they saw, we have some differences between the two. But the same basic elements are all there. Now, to, to, to illustrate that point, let's think about it this way. Let's say that you got Ezekiel and you transported him to our day and you gave him a bit of a tour around the gave him a bit of a tour around the uh, around the studio, showed him how the radio worked, took him on a bit of a road trip, maybe took him on an aeroplane ride, showed him how, our computer systems, and then told Ezekiel, I want you to go back. Yeah, I think we had a bit of a blooper here in the studio because I forgot to have the jingle again. I'm going to get in trouble for that. Um, <laughs> but anyway, but then you sent Ezekiel back in time and you said, I want you to write down everything you saw. He doesn't actually have the words in his language to describe the things he's seen. Do the same with John. It's going to sound quite different, particularly when Ezekiel goes into great detail and John gives a couple of broad brushstrokes. But what we find, and, and one, of the, one of the differences that we find, and we're just going to look at this one real quick. Here in Revelation chapter 4, the Bible says, um, let me see, verse 6. The Bible says, Before the throne there was a sea of grass like crystal, and in the middle of the throne, round about the throne, were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. 
Now, these living creatures have four different faces, and each one of those different faces describes a different part of the plan of salvation. Last week, we looked in Ezekiel chapter 10, where the Bible says that these are cherubim. So we know that they are cherubim. We know that they are creatures that we don't have words within our language to describe. How do you describe a creature that is full of eyes within and without? I mean, what even is that? Now, of course, Ezekiel going going into much greater depth on this, if we go over to Ezekiel chapter 10 now, Ezekiel 10, where are we? Ezekiel, just before Daniel, here we go, getting there. Ezekiel 10 and... In verse 1, the Bible says, And I looked, and behold, a firmament was above the head of the cherubim, so that's your four living creatures, and there appeared over them, as it were, a sapphire stone, as the appearance of the likeness of a throne. So we find that the throne of God is central to this story. If we go down to verse 9, the Bible says, And when I looked, behold, the four wheels by the cherubim, one wheel by one cherub, another wheel by another cherub, and the appearance of the wheels was as of a beryl stone. And the Bible goes on to describe these wheels, and it's actually these wheels that are full of eyes. How do you have wheels that are full of eyes? I mean, I don't even know what they're trying to describe right here. But they're describing creatures that are always associated with the throne of God. And so what you find is, if you go to Solomon's temple, you find that there were four cherubim in the most holy place. If you go to Moses' sanctuary in the wilderness, there were four standards or flags or faces that were around the most holy place. These are all beings that are there um, that serve that are there for the purpose of serving God and also for the purpose of serving uh, humanity as God works with humanity in the salvation of um, of humanity. And of course, if you look at the four faces, you've got the face of a lion. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. You've got the face of a man. Jesus is the son of man. You've got the fa- face of an eagle, which is a symbol of divinity. Um, you have the face of an ox or an animal of sacrifice. And Jesus was the man who gave his life as a sacrifice, who was the divine son of God. And so they all tell us something about Jesus and the plan of salvation. 